today? I tell you what, I went through a crisis trying to figure out what to speak on this morning. I'm like, I don't know, can you speak on the book of Revelation on Easter Sunday morning? So I went through a whole bunch of different things. We're back to Revelation, gang. So it unveils Jesus. What is Easter about? It's about Jesus. And actually, the gospel story is right in this passage. So uh, you got sheets on, uh, on your tables there that have kind of an outline for today. Hopefully, it's posted in the link in the description for the uh, online audience as well. We'd like to welcome our online audience. Happy Resurrection Day to you, even if you're watching it on a day that's not Easter. So we're in a series on the book of Revelation, and today we're going to start in chapter 2. And so just to kind of catch you up, chapter 1, John is the Apostle John. Uh, remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's the one who's writing this, and he is uh, stuck on an island of Patmos for his faith. He's being persecuted for his faith. It's kind of like a penal, Roman penal colony. He's there, and so he is stuck there, and in the middle of this, he gets caught up into the spirit realm, and he has a, his vision of Jesus. And here's Jesus, and he get, gives this incredible description of it, his hair, his eyes, his feet, his robe, and uh, he falls down like dead. So the last time you saw Jesus, remember, he's reclining against his breast, their buddies and everything, and now he sees him in his resurrected state. He sees the, the glorified human being who's now ruling the cosmos. You guys do realize, human being, he falls down like dead. He says he sees them walking among seven, seven golden lampstands. He's in this spirit realm, this lampstand realm. You can kind of take the book of Revelation and overlay the, uh, the tabernacle of Moses from the Old Testament over that. <clears throat> we'll get into that more geeky stuff later, or powerful stuff, however you look at it. Well, more powerful stuff later. But he's in this realm, it's, it's part of the tabernacle of Moses, and it says he sees seven golden lampstands. And he says, these are the seven churches. And he says he's got seven stars in his hand. And uh, he says, those are the seven pastors of these churches. And so he begins to uh, give seven revelations to the church here. So you guys ready for this? Yes. Now, a couple things. This book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation of the Antichrist. So that is our approach to this thing. It tells you right in the first line of the book, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. How many of you guys realize that a title of a book often tells you what it's about? Yeah. And when he's telling you, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, we're going to take that seriously. And it also says that he um, signified it to them. He gave it to them through signs and symbols. And so we're going to see this is a symbolic book. So when we see a lamb, it's not talking about a furry barnyard animal. Right. It's a symbol that points to a greater reality. And so we're going to be consistent with this. We're going to interpret this as a book of symbols telling us about Jesus. All right, you guys feel caught up? Yes. All right. All right, so as we go into chapters 2 and 3 here, it's seven revelations that Jesus gives of himself to a church. And so it kind of follows a pattern. He gives them a revelation of himself, and then he ties it to, you're going to need this revelation for this command I'm about to give you. So sometimes he's correcting them. But I love how Jesus never asked them to do anything until he gives them a revelation of himself that they're going to need that gives them the grace to, call, to carry out the thing he calls them to do. You guys know Jesus is never going to command you to do something that you can't do in his strength. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, you, yeah, you guys know you're not going to be judged for your sins anymore. Jesus was judged for our sins. I know this sounds crazy, but it's actually true. What's the final clause of the new covenant? I will remember your sins and lawless deeds. No more. No more. Okay, uh, he's not going to come back to you. I, I know what you did last summer. There's none of these type of things. He remembered it, and he says he cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. And so <clears throat> as we're coming into this realm... We are no longer being judged on the basis of what we have done. We are being rewarded on the basis of what we have done in Christ's strength. There will be a judgment for people who do not know God, but for the judgment for the believers, he's looking for reasons to reward you, not looking for reasons to punish you. 
Okay, this is such good news. And so, he, so he, John's caught up into this realm, and he sees he's about to give these seven revelations to these churches in chapter 3. And so he starts off in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, with a message to the church in Ephesus. So let's go ahead and read the whole passage together. Write the following to the messenger of the congregation in Ephesus. For these are the words of mine who holds the seven stars firmly in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let's hit the pause button there. Remember, back in chapter 1, he gave this revelation of himself, and this is part of the revelation. So now Jesus is going to take these different descriptions of him from chapter 1, and he's going to reintroduce them to these churches in chapters 2 and 3, because they're going to need this revelation if they're going to overcome. Verse 2, I know all that you've done for me. You've worked hard and persevered. I know that you don't tolerate evil. You have tested those who claim to be apostles and prove they are not, for they were imposters. Verse 3, I also know you have bravely endured trials and persecutions because of my name, yet you have not become discouraged. Because I have this against you, you have abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning. Think about how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works of love you did at first. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place of influence if you do not repent. Verse 6. There's a lot of people out there teaching that under the new covenant you don't have to repent, but you can't get more new covenant than resurrected Jesus coming to his church. There's some people who are like, oh my, I'm, okay, this, is, this was years ago. I actually had people leave the church because they said, my dad would never correct me like that. He just tells me that he loves me. Well, gang, <laughs> the Bible says if you're, if you're not corrected, you're an illegitimate son. How many, uh, how many New Testament books are there? 27. Okay, not as <laughs> Hold on. The answer is Jesus. No, it's just 27. I know you've been trained here to be tricked into questions. It's 27. Okay, and so the, um, it's interesting. You can remember there's 39 books in the Old Testament. Three times nine is 27. It's a good way to remember it. Anyway, so, um, so for some of you, that was a big revelation right there. Three times nine. Yeah, don't let that be your takeaway for today. We, got, we haven't got to the good stuff yet. All right, I'm getting distracted here. All right. 27 books in the New Testament, and in all 27, he warns or corrects believers against sin. Okay? So sin, sin is not good. But we don't get out of sin by trying not to get out of sin. We get out of sin by changing our appetite by feasting on Jesus. We're going to see that's actually the solution in this passage here. But let's keep going. Verse 6, although to your credit, so you guys are getting me so off track already here. I tell you, I don't know what you guys are doing here. Verse 6, although to your credit, you despise the practices of Nicolaitans. Oh, yeah, we all hate those Nicolaitans, don't we? Which I also despise. Verse 7, the one whose heart is open, let him listen carefully to what the Spirit is saying now to all the churches. Now, this isn't just a message to one church in one historic location. This is a message to all churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give access to feast on the fruit of the tree of life that is found in the paradise of God. Well, I think everything's pretty self-explanatory. Let's just go ahead and close out here. I'm just kidding. Yeah, there's a lot of imagery in here. It's going to be good. Verse one, let's look at verse 1 again. Write the following to the messenger of the congregation in Ephesus. For these are the words of the one who holds the seven stars firmly in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, there was an actual church in a literal city of Ephesus, but we see that this is also is written to all different churches, okay? But the, uh, it's interesting, the different names of the churches also have meanings. Remember, this is a book of symbols. And so although it was a literal church, it also has symbolic meaning. The word Ephesus means desirable or darling. It's a, it's a word that a bridegroom would use for his bride. I don't know if it used to be like babe or hot stuff or sexy beast. I don't know, maybe not quite that far. <clears throat> Sorry, you're getting a peek into our personal lives here. 
I'm always trying to get my wife to call me sex obese. It doesn't work, but... Oh, this is ridiculous. And so, well, of course, we just got HBO Max so we could watch the Snyder Cut. And so um, Joshua, my oldest son, he uh, did the login information for us, and it's Sexy Beast. I'm like, oh, my word. Every time we have to log in, a Sexy Beast. <clears throat> so thank you, Joshua, for that. We're getting, we're getting mom closer, all right? But there's an actual city, and uh, the word Ephesus means darlings. How does it feel to be the, the darling or the desirable church of Christ? Isn't it interesting, this church who had lost their first love, he's still in love with them. When it says that God loves you unconditionally, you know what that means? Regardless of your condition. He's not moved by your incredible Bible reading or your fasting, and he's not discouraged by your sin. He loves you the same. He loves you without condition. He is love. So he says, I write to you, my desirable ones. And so, uh, again, it's fitting that pattern. He's going to give a revelation of who he is. Verse 2, I know all that you've done for me. You've worked hard and persevered. I know that you don't tolerate evil. You have tested those who claim to be apostles and proved they are not, for they were imposters. I also know how you have bravely endured trials and persecutions because of my name, yet you have not become discouraged. Another translation says, I know all that you've done for me. Another translation says, I know your hard work. Here's some good news. People may not notice the good work that you do, but Jesus does. And you will be rewarded according to what you have done, not according to how you've been appreciated. I'm going to say that again. Remember, when we get to heaven, we're not going to be judged based on our sin. We're going to be rewarded based on what we've done, not how much applause we got from men and women here on earth. So that means mom and dad, he sees what you've done in secret for your children. It says he bottles up every tear that you've cried. Those that serve him in church and on our different teams, he sees what you've done. Those of you serving the poor, the orphans, the widows, the single parents, the sex trafficking victims, the, uh, all, all the things that we have going on here, the people in your workplace that you're serving behind the scene that nobody sees, Jesus sees it and he says, you know what, there's a reward coming for you. Yeah, Jim, but he knows the bad stuff too. He does it, but that's not what he's talking about here. Remember, he took that stuff away on the cross and he remembers it no more. You will never be reminded of your sins in heaven. You're not going to be nicknamed by your worst moment. You will never be called into account for your sin. You'll be judged for your works so that you can be rewarded. So Jesus, he calls you, it's interesting, he calls you to do good works. He empowers you to do those good works, and then he rewards you if you did those things yourself. I mean, it's just an incredible deal that's going on. So I want you to get a different viewpoint of who our king is. He's not a troll on the internet trying to correct every post you make. All right, apparently some of you don't post on the internet. That one's actually very meaningful to me. <laughs> he's a lover who knows your sacrifices. I love how he's described as the one who holds the seven stars firmly in his right hand. And the, uh, the seven stars were the, were the pastors of the church, the leaders of the church. He's saying, listen, I don't care what's going on in the, in the world. I don't care what's going on in the church. I've got the pastors. I've got the leaders right in my hand here. Interesting picture. Paul wrote a letter to this same church in Ephesus, and he talked about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, it's become known as the fivefold of God. A lot of people picture it as the five fingers of God. And so the true test of, a, of an apostle is, are they in his hand? They were gifts of Christ to the church. And so we're gonna, this is going to become a key here. Are they in his hand? Every true ministry will, uh, will point you to God, and every false ministry will point you to themselves. When you begin seeing people draw people to... A false prophet isn't just someone who prophesies falsely. It's someone who's leading you to follow them. 
You're going to need their words. You're going to need to correct. You're going to need to run things by them. Those apostles that are controlling people, I'll tell you where you can move. I'll tell you what job you can get. I'll tell you who you can marry. You're drawing people to yourselves. You're not drawing people to Jesus. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are not people who have suddenly got a black belt in spirituality and are now passing on the goodies to people. They are people who are connecting you to the vine yourself so that you can receive life from the tree of life himself. That's how they were able to prove whether or not they were false apostles. Were they in his hand? Were they pointing you to the one who's holding them? Are we okay? Verse 4. He just basically told him this. I love all the good stuff you're doing. It's good, verse 4, but I have this against you. I have this one thing. And I want you to notice the love sandwich that's coming up here. You guys, we, we, can all, we can all grow in wisdom from what I'm about to say here. Are you guys ready for this? The love sandwich. I don't care if it's your child. I don't care if it's your spouse. First of all, uh, use rebuke sparingly. If all you're doing is riding your kids, what does the Bible say? It says you will exasperate them. Helicopter moms, helicopters dad, give them a little break. Thank you. I should have heard some teenage voice. No, 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 don't teenage, no, no. Now, your parents are doing their best. Your parents, we're all doing our best, all right? But I don't care if it's your child, your spouse, uh, if you're a pastor, if you're a leader, if, uh, if you have a position at work that uh, others report to you, use rebuke sparingly and always put it in a love sandwich. Here's what I like. Let's work on this. Here's what I like. Okay, let's look at how Jesus does this. People are like, I like the bread, but the meat's a little tough to choke down here on the sandwich, right? Okay, guys, there is a valid time for rebuke and correction, all right? But you better put it in a love sandwich because a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, all right? Jesus commends them. He tells them five things he loves about them, okay? I love that you do this. I love your hard work. And then, uh, and then uh, right in the middle of that, he gives them some correction. And he says, hey, you guys hate the Nicolaitans? I hate that stuff too. And then he says, I'm going to uh, offer you the gift of eating at the tree of life in the paradise of God. You see the sandwich. You guys are doing these five, five things awesome. We need to work on this. Hey, Nicolaitans, me too. Tree of life. Love sandwich. Are we guys good? So what does he have against them? He says, you have abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning. The number one issue for Jesus is your heart. Do you love him? God is more concerned about the person you become and the heart that you do it from than the task list that you complete for the kingdom. Okay? God is not a type A personality making sure that you get an empty inbox with all your emails and get all your tasks done. He's more concerned about, do you love me? Guys, love is a powerful force in the universe. Love will make you do things that law can never make you do. Does anyone remember, the first, any married couples in here, do you remember the first time you told your spouse that you love them? I tell you, that is kind of a harrowing, scary time, isn't it? Because you don't want to just throw it out there and be the only one who feels it, right? you got to kind of send out some vibes to see if the message is coming back in the same way. Some of our and I had been dating a, a little while. We'd been dating about three months, and it was getting pretty embarrassing. Like, we were almost to the level of baby talk to each other, okay? So we are, I had written her some poetry. I had sang it a cappella and recorded it on a tape that she still has in hiding and won't show it to me. Some goofy song about us, like two passengers on a train, and we're going towards godliness. And I was like, how do we even get married with this kind of stuff? I don't even know. <laughs> so it was October 14th, 1993. Mary's not here. 
She had mouth surgery. I hope she's watching this. I better get some major points for knowing this date. No, it was October 16th. October 16th, 1993. Oh, don't you even start. You guys don't even know what day of the week it was when you told your spouse, okay? It was her dad's birthday. That's how I can remember. October 16th, 1993. Okay, I cheated a little bit there. And so in her defense, I had taken her out that night, and we were broke, which was for most of our marriage. We're, uh, and so uh, we're broke, and so we couldn't really afford to go out to eat. And so I took her out to this place called Cheddar's, and we got uh, raspberry cheesecake, this giant piece of cheesecake. So all we had in our stomachs was sugar. And so, and so she had driven, she went to school down in Florida, and she lived in Indiana. And so she drove up to Indiana. I drove from Michigan down to Indiana. And so we're hanging out at her parents' house, and she had her roommates were in the other room. And so we stayed up talking to about three in the morning, okay? Not suggested, but that's just what we're doing. Three in the morning, sugar in our stomachs, and I think, you know what, this is it. This is the time. I'm going to go ahead and drop this bomb on her. And so I said, um, Mary, I really, really like you. And she's like, you know what, I really, really like you too. I'm like, all right, check. <laughs> it's like those military things. We've just passed alpha zone, you know? It's like, okay, we, we passed the like thing. I said, you know what, I like you about as much as you can possibly like someone. And she says, you know what, I feel the same way. I thought, all right. <clears throat> Here we go, stretched out a little bit, you know, and so I'm like, I said, Marianne Collins, I love you. And she smiled, and she went, and she faints into my arms. No lie, faints into my arms, and I'm like, I don't know what's happening here, and she looks like she's choking on her tongue. I'm like, I don't know what's happening. So I lay her in the ground, and I jump over her body, and I go into the kitchen, and I get some water and a banana. I don't know if I thought she needed some potassium. I don't even know what's happening here. And so I go back in there, and I'm kind of like trying to like nurse some water back into her. And she looks at me again and, um, and then faints again. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is happening here? I mean, this is all like swirling. And she gets up and goes to the bathroom, and she starts throwing up in the bathroom. <laughs> Got to be kidding me. And she comes out, wipes her mouth, is like, um, hey, can you just let yourself out? And I'm like, yeah, I, I guess so. So I go back home. Remember, this is before cell phones. And so she's got the drive from Indiana up to um, Florida. I got the drive from uh, uh, Indiana up to Michigan. So we haven't talked now for like 36 hours. I've got no answer. And so I, um, I called my dad up. on my dad, this is so weird. I told Mary that I loved her. She faints, and then she throws up. And, um, and this is no lie. Dad kind of gets this far-off look in his face. He says, you know what, Jim, it's the strangest thing. First time I told your mother I loved her, she threw up all night. I was like, what? I'm like, this is our superpower? Are you kidding me? Sheesh. Obviously, we finally got a hold of each other. She reciprocated. End of the story. But I'll tell you what, love is a powerful force, and no one in their marriage wants it to be reduced down to, you know what? We said I do. We don't love each other, but we're going to keep on doing it out of duty. We're going to stay married for the kids. Like, like, fine, stay married for the kids and fall in love again and all those things. But no one wants a loveless marriage. What is Jesus? He says he's coming for his bride. He's not looking for a loveless marriage. He's not looking for a wife who's a good cook and is really good at fasting and really good at praying. He wants your heart. Another way to translate this is, is that you've abandoned your first love. Okay? That, that word first there in the New Testament in this passage, it means foremost or best or paramount, or supreme, or crowning, or number one. When he says first love, he says, I want to be your foremost love, your best love, your paramount, your supreme love, your crowning love. It's the, I want it to be the number one love that you have. 
the exclusive love in your heart above everything else. It means no one can steal your heart away. No one can take your gaze off of Jesus. No one can draw you away from Jesus. We love him because he first loved us. If you're sitting here and you're having a hard time, you've lost that love and feeling. Religion will make you lose that love and feeling quicker than anything else. Well, we're going to see that's what they fell into here in a second. Anyway, so the, uh, if, you're, if you've lost that loving feeling, don't try to work up that feeling. What does he say? Remember where you came from. Remember the highway you've fallen. We love him because he first loved us. That's the new covenant. As we see him and then uh, he is unveiled before us, our natural response is to love in him. And as we feed on that love, that love increases. In the kingdom, you don't get hungry by not eating. That's the natural realm. In the kingdom, you get more hungry by feasting on him. We love him because he first loves us. And that's the love that they abandon. Verse 5, think about how far you have fallen. Here's the question, how far have they fallen? Okay, here's what I'm seeing here. Jesus is not saying, remember how far you fell last week? You were closer to God last week. and not, you know, I don't think he's saying that. He's not saying, remember how far you've fallen since the last time you've sinned? He's encouraging them to remember all the way back to the beginning about what caused the initial fall of humanity with Adam and Eve when they sinned. Remember how far you have fallen. And what does he tie the promise into? If you remember how far you've fallen, you can eat of the tree of life in the garden of paradise. Remember back to the garden. I'm going to give you the same promise in the garden. Come on, somebody. It's about to get good, all right? Look at how Jesus connects the remembering with what he promised, uh, with, with, with the promise there, okay? Remember back to the fall. I'm going to give you the reward of everything that was in the garden. Adam and Eve, they ate, there was two trees in the garden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there was the tree of life. Adam and Eve ate from the wrong tree, Okay? They were, it's, it's, the, the enemy came and told them this. Listen, if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. This was a huge deception because they were already like God. This is what religion tries to get you to do. Religion tries to get you through human effort, which you already possess through divine gift. If you'll do these things, then you'll be like God. If you'll just get rid of the sin, if you'll just be more loving, if you'll just do this and do this and do this and this. Then God will be pleased with you. Then you'll be more godly. And he's like, no, no, that's not how the whole thing works. You're already like God. It's interesting. God created them from the, uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, the whole earth was created and then he put them in a place of his finished work. And their only job was to subdue and, ta- subdue and take dominion. He places us in the middle of his finished work and says, it's finished. I've done everything. Now just live from that place. Stay connected from that place. Trusting Jesus that he's finished everything from that place, and that's how you live. But if you begin to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and think that you've got to do things for God, well, then you fall, and you lose that first love. You can be like God without God, is what the enemy came and told them. They ate from the wrong tree. Eating from the wrong tree is deadly. I remember I had this friend who, <laughs> his dad was overweight and had a heart attack, and so he was really like on this quest to eat good and everything. And so my friend came over to his house. And so we lived in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, if you guys have ever been to Missouri, has anyone ever been to Andy's Frozen Custard? Oh, what a slice of heaven that place is. Unbelievable. My wife and I were broke. We still ate there every week. We put it in our budget. It was just an unbelievable place. <laughs> Andy's Frozen Custard is not healthy heart food. It is like the most fattening, fat of the land, flung with milk and honey. It's just like it's everything that's bad but so good, okay? And so my friend's dad thought it was frozen yogurt and that it was healthy for you. 
And so my friend came to check on his dad. He opens up the freezer, and it is literally floor to ceiling filled with Andy's frozen custard pints. And his dad is like, this has been incredible. I've been eating these every single meal. <laughs> He's like, Dad, you are killing. He's like, no, no, it's healthy for you. He's like, Dad, it's not healthy. It's Okay. You can think you're eating the right thing, and it can still be killing you. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we know what it is to eat from evil. Okay? We, we know what it's like to, to not do bad things, but the tree of the knowledge also had good in it. Okay? You trying to do good apart from God may not seem as bad, but it will still kill you. Religion teaches you to avoid the evil on this tree, but it fails to see that the good on the knowledge of the tree of good and evil will kill you just as quickly. It's just more deceptive. The issue is not how much good you've done or how much evil you've avoided, but what tree are you eating from? As a believer, your primary goal is not to learn how to quit sinning. It's to feed on the tree of life and change your appetite so you lose the desire for sin. How are we doing? If you want to have a church full of sin, I'm going to give you the recipe for how to do that. Preach on sin and tell people to stop sinning all the time. That puts them under law. It gets them feeding on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now they're up to their own human strength and they're going to fall. If you want a church that is walking in grace, have them feed on the person who is grace. Change their appetite. And they will sin less on accident than the people over here on purpose struggling. Let me ask you this. How do you get darkness out of a room? Do you get you know, some kind of buckets and try to shovel all the darkness out of a room? Or do you turn on the light and watch the darkness leave? What's the Bible say? Walk in the Spirit, and then you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. It doesn't say, don't, desire the flesh, don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Don't sin. Stop sinning. Then you can walk in the Spirit. No, no. That's spiritual dyslexia. That's putting everything backwards. Walk in the Spirit. Feed on the tree of life. Feast on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Him. And those things you won't even want anymore. So it'll be good news to somebody. What caused the original fall? He said, remember the original fall. What caused the original fall? Performance-based religion. Trying to get through human effort what they already had through divine gift. What was the result of that? It pushed them away from God, and they hid behind dead trees. and Realized they were naked and ashamed. Guys, that's the result of religion. You can keep it up for so long, but there's really not... Do you really want to be close to a God who's like a mag- has a magnifying glass up there burning ants like a bully, looking to inspect everything that you're doing wrong? You can't be close to a God like that. Luckily, it's not like that. Jesus says, if you'll repent from that, if you'll overcome that performance-based religion, then you can eat again from the tree of life and the paradise of God. He's saying, you've got to change trees. You can't feed on a gospel that tells you to be good enough, that covers people with shame, and wonder why they've lost that love and feeling. Verse 5, think about how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works of love you did at first. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place of influence if you do not repent. Repent means more than simply to change one's mind and to change one's direction. So the idea is that you change your thinking, and as a result of that, you're going to go a different direction. direction that's a part of it. It also means to take another's mind. So it's not just I'm thinking different thoughts. I'm taking on the mind of Christ. WWJT, what would Jesus think? That's what we're talking about here. Are we okay here? Yeah. This feels extra quiet. I don't know. Maybe because the kids are all out Easter egg hunting or something. I don't know. 
Revelation and renewing the mind is not about rehabilitating or giving your old Adam nature an upgrade. It's about God changing you into a completely different kind of being. I love the term regeneration. Think about that term regeneration. Regenerated. You're literally getting a new DNA, the DNA of God that is now working itself out into your life. The Father loves the Son so much that he's going to fill the universe with lookalikes of Jesus. Everything you love about Jesus, he's making you into that very same thing. And so he says, repent and do the works of love you did at first. Not the works of religion, not the dead works, not the performance-based thing. Do things from that place of love. He didn't say, go back to your religious duty with more fervor. Pray more, fast more. You need to be hungry. You got to be hungry for God. You should be hungry. Well, just telling me that I need to be hungry doesn't help me be hungry. It just puts me under my law and guilt that I'm not hungry enough. And how hungry is hungry enough? Well, according to the preacher, not in your current state. (laughs) You're never hungry enough, so you need to focus on being hungry. No, 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 no. Feast on the tree of life. And you'll never want to remove your gaze from him. How are we doing? So he's saying to the entire church, be careful that you don't minimize the importance of love. Remember for where Adam has fallen. Put that vision of restoring that kind of relationship where they walked with God in the garden, in the cool of the day. Interesting, the cool of the day isn't really what the Hebrew says. It's the ruach of the day. Ruach is the Hebrew word for breath, wind, or spirit. They walk with God in the... God's breathing on them. He's walking with them. It's this picture of intimacy. He didn't say, I'm going to come kill you or kick you out of the kingdom if you don't repent. He says, I'm going to remove your place of influence. And he says, although to your credit, this is part of that love sandwich, you despise the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also despise. Who were these Nicolaitans? My goodness. The word Nicolaitan could be translated the performing of rituals, which really fits with this context. The meaning of the Greek word Nicolaitans could mean to rule or conquer over people, which seems that what he's kind of warning them against, that could be the false apostles. Either way, it works in this passage, whether it's the false apostles trying to rule over people, or there was the rituals and demands that they, were, uh, that they had fallen into, that they need to remember where they fell from. Either way, here's the thing. Just because you despise religion and its commands doesn't mean you, can, you can't still fall into the trap of thinking it's up to you to please God. Nobody likes religion. Nobody likes the heavy-handedness and then this and that and and feeling bad about that. Just because you hate it doesn't mean you can't fall into it. Just because you come to a church like this where we teach it all the time doesn't mean that the enemy can't come and try to slip slip it on you. You know what? God's not going to answer your prayer. Look what you did. When you begin to think, you know what? I need God to answer this prayer, and so I've got to do something for him to answer this prayer. I've got to confess to the sin. God, show me any wicked... You begin to try to clean yourself up. That's religion. That's dead works. Christianity is about what Jesus has done, and God is going to answer my prayer based on what Jesus has done, not based on what I'm doing to pry his hand open. His hand's already open. Verse 7, final verse. Are we okay? All right. The one whose heart is open, let him listen carefully to what the Spirit is saying now to all the churches. Notice this isn't what John is saying. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying to all the churches. Again, this is proof that this is for every church of every age, not just the church of Ephesus. To the one who overcomes, I will give access to feast on the fruit of the tree of life that is found in the paradise of God. This might be one of the most wonderful promises to any church who continues in its first love here. Um, Even a church who has left its first love is still loved by God and offered this promise of intimacy. So let's look at this. If you're here today and you feel like, you know what, my heart has grown cold. 
I've lost that love and feeling. I'm here at church, but I'd rather be at home. And I'm a so-and-so dragging me here. I just want you to tell you, he still loves you. He loves weak people. They're the only kind he has. God hasn't had anybody qualified working for him yet, and you and I ain't going to be the first. The only kind of churches he can use are weak churches. That's the only kind he has. Those are the ones he's going to use to transform the kingdoms of this world into the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. This should be good news here. To the one who overcomes. You know what the word overcome means? You're going to have to have something to overcome. So in context, what is it that they have to overcome? Uh, The word overcome means to subdue, vanquish, prevail, or experience victory. And so to the one who overcomes and subdues and vanquishes and prevails, to the one who experiences victory, who overcomes what? Okay? In this context, you have to overcome something. It would be that cold love. It would be just serving God out of a heart, or not even serving him. It's just you're lukewarm, you're cold, you don't have it. And he said, listen, if you can overcome that, here's what I've got on the other side of you. Here's this promise. Get out of that dead religion. It just always ends in that. Uh, Here's what I've got for you. Um, The broader context of overcoming in the book of Revelation, this is just a little teaser. It would be overcoming the beast life in you that comes out of the sea, out of the abyss inside of you. The beast out of the earth. Where were you made out of? The dust of the earth. The mark of the beast is 666, the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. All right, we're not going to go too much into this. We okay? You guys are getting a little nervous. It's not a computer chip in your forehead. It's the mark of this world system of doing things apart from Christ. Guys, your biggest problem is the devil. Your biggest problem is pride, doing things in your own strength. That's the beast that you're going to be overcoming. It's interesting, all these bowls and vials and judgments, they're poured out against those things that are inside of you that he's already defeated that you can have access. Anyway, it's going to be good. All right, so what's promised to the one overcome? Let's wrap it up here. I will give access to feast on the fruit of the tree of life that is found in the paradise of God. Now, where was uh, the word paradise there is Eden, okay? It's in the Eden of God. Eden means delight, all right? Uh, what was the paradise of God where the tree of life was found? It was the Garden of Eden, which means delight. Did you know that you are a garden? You guys ready for this? I love 1 Corinthians 3.9. You know what it says? You are God's garden. Listen to the words of Song of Songs, verses 4, 11 through 15. Song of Songs is the greatest song of all time. It's the love song of a, of a bridegroom, Jesus, for his bride, the church, and then them singing back to him, back and forth, Okay. So look at this. These are the words of Christ to his bride in uh, verse 11. I I believe you got them on your sheet there. Your loving words are like the honeycomb to me. Your tongue releases milk and honey. A bunch of symbolic language. We're not going to go into this. For I find the promised land flowing within you. The fragrance of your worshiping love surrounds me with scented robes of white. My darling bride, my private paradise. You know where that word paradise is? Garden. He's calling his bride his garden. Fastened to my heart, a secret spring that no one else can can have are you, my bubbling fountain hidden from public view. What a perfect partner to me now now that I have you. Your inward life is now sprouting, bringing forth fruit. What a beautiful paradise, what a beautiful garden, there's that word again, unfolds within you. When I'm near you, I smell aromas of the finest spice for many clusters of my exquisite fruit. Now grow within your inner garden. 
Here are the nine. Pomegranates of passion, henna from heaven, spikenard so sweet, saffron shining. These are often, many of these are um, ingredients in the anointing oil. But God's garden is full of incense. Incense, not... <laughs> we can edit that one. God's garden is full of incense and fragrance. And so wherever his presence is, he's showing these pictures of this, of this garden. Fragrant calamus from the cross, sacred cinnamon, branches of scented woods, myrrh like tears from a tree, and aloe as the eagle's ascending. Verse 15, you are a fountain of gardens. A well of living water springs up from within you like a mountain brook flowing into my heart. The Bible starts with a man and his bride in a garden. The Bible literally ends with Jesus with his bride in a garden that has a, um, that has a river coming out of it that flows from the side of the lamb. Remember when he was pierced, what came blood and water, birth of the church? We'll get to that later. It's interesting. So the beginning of the book is a bride, a man with his bride in a garden. The end of the book is the lamb with his bride in the garden. And right in the middle of the book, in Song of Songs, you have a man with his bride in a garden. And he's, saying to this, uh, and he's saying to them, you are my garden. You are my paradise. And the Song of Songs, the issue was, as he came into the garden, as the next part of it was, is he says, are you even aware that I'm in the garden? Okay. Are we ready for this? The garden is you. Are you aware of him? He has come to the garden. He has come to you, and he's saying, are you aware of me? Adam and Eve, they were created to live in a garden, and by Adam's actions, he turned that garden into a graveyard. Planet Earth was cursed. Death came into it. Jesus came into the graveyard to turn it back into a garden. In the garden, Adam has a tree of life, but he chose to feed from a tree that produces death. Jesus hung on a tree of death to produce the tree of life. The old rugged cross has become a mighty tree of life for you and me. The garden was cursed when man sinned so that it brought forth thorns and thistles. What did Jesus wear on his head? Thorns and thistles that he shed blood over to redeem us from the earth's curse so we could go back to the garden. It's interesting that he wore it on his head because this is the place that needs redeemed so we can have access to this garden. Repent, changing our thinking. Renewing of the mind is not just knowing Bible stories and Bible verses. Is coming into a revelation of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's knowing that when he remember, notice he said, it is finished when he hung on the cross. He didn't say, I'm finished. I'm done with these people. I've had enough of this. He said, it's finished. It's perfectly complete. Everything that needs to happen to reverse every curse, there's now no distance, no separation. Everything that, uh, that the, the, the fall brought, God redeemed back together and brought it back together. And he says, you are my garden, and I want to walk in the cool of the day with you. And if you will overcome... If you'll repent, if you'll change your mind and come to this understanding that it is finished, come out of that performance-based religion, ignite that first love again, we can walk in the cool of the day together again. And you can feast on this tree of life. Hearing his voice, walking with him. It's interesting, Adam and Eve, the first thing that happened after they sinned, God came into the garden and he didn't say, what did you guys do? Look at this mess. You've just thrown the entire cosmos in a cast. He says, where are you? I'm looking for my friends. Now they're off hiding because of performance-based religion, hiding behind fig trees, feeling naked and ashamed. But what was his reaction to their sin? Where's my friends? I'll tell you what, guys. You know what God's reaction is to your sin? Where's my friends? I want to I go back to the garden. You're my garden. Let's go back and walk together. 
talk together. Jesus says, if you'll overcome, I will open up a realm inside of you where you can feast continually. Now, in the book of Revelation, there's persecutions. Your body may be beaten or bruised. You may endure suffering and persecution, but your feast within will be continual and continuous, and you will always have access. And I will grant to you an access to the realm of paradise, my garden, for I have planted the tree of life in you. Here's some good news, guys. The gospel, real simple, in two words, is trust Jesus. It's not just believing facts about him, what he did on the cross. It's saying, you know what? I'm, I'm trusting you with my life. I'm putting my confidence in this person of Jesus. I'm not just trying to trust you to get into heaven when you die. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get into heaven before I die, into that heavenly realm, into that garden realm, into that realm where I can live in his presence and power. That's the good news that he came to bring you. So here's my, a lot of times in churches, the question gets asked, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? Heaven or hell? You guys heard something like that? Where's my question? If you were to live tonight and tomorrow and for a really long time, who do you want to follow? Do you want to do this life in your own strength? Or do you want to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with the master of life? The answer should be, you know what? If, if, I'm gonna, if, if I don't die tonight, I'm going to live for tomorrow for a long time. I'm going to trust Jesus with all of my life. I'm going to trust him with everything, that will, and that will allow me to live in his kingdom, in his presence, in his garden. Now listen, if you do die tonight and you've trusted Jesus, you will go to heaven, but most people aren't going to die tonight. They have to face tomorrow and the day after and the day after. So here's the question. Are you going to live life on your own tomorrow and the day after? Because if you do, you're not trusting Jesus. There's many believers here. You're saved and you're going to heaven, but you're living in your own resources because you're not trusting Jesus. I would imagine in a room like this, it's mostly believers, probably the ones listening online who have made it this far into a church service. You've got to be a raging believer to, to make it this far, probably. Guys, there's a danger in our circles of not turning our back on Jesus, just ignoring him in our busyness. We, we get so busy doing our own things, we treat busyness as if it's the 10th fruit of the Spirit. How are you doing? Busy. Oh, yeah, me too. Because in our society, somehow, to not be busy means to not be important. Busyness is the curse of this generation. And he's offering you, the church of Ephesus and the church of all churches, me, you, everyone listening to this today, he's offering you a chance to repent. To look and see, you know what, I don't have to keep trying to please God. And every time I blow it, he's not angry at me. It's not about do, do, do. It's about what he has done. And I can rest in that completed work. And he placed the garden in the middle of his completed work, and he says, live from that. And he's inviting you that today. If everybody could stand.